you would turn in your Bibles to Ephesians, the sixth chapter, I'm going to read a few verses beginning in verse 10. The title of the message this morning is, War is No Picnic. War is No Picnic. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. July 21st, 1861 was the first major battle of the Civil War after the capture of Fort Sumter that started the war. Some people called this the Battle of Manassas or the First Battle of Manassas. Others called it the Battle of Bull Run or the First Battle of Bull Run because two battles took place here. And others referred to it as the Picnic Battle because what happened on this first major battle is that a lot of your society types in Washington, D.C., it was not far from there, they went out and wanted to observe the battle. And they took picnic baskets, blankets, wine, cheese, opera glasses to go and observe this, what they thought was going to be a fantastic thing. One of the accounts that I read by Edward Longacre, the early morning of war, Bull Run, back in the 1800s, he wrote that carriages and wagons parked on the fringes of the battlefield from which picnickers of both sexes, that's male and female, sallied forth to spread tablecloths on the ground and while away the day, devouring not only reports from the front, but also grapes, sweetmeats, and wine. And the Boston Herald, a few days after this debacle of the picnic battle, put a little poem in the Boston Herald, and it said, Have you heard of the story so lacking in glory about the civilians who went to the fight? With everything handy from sandwich to brandy to fill their broad stomachs and make them all tight. There were, bull, there were bulls from our State Street and cattle from Wall Street and members of Congress to see the great fun. Newspaper reporters, some regular shorters, on a beautiful Sunday went out to Bull Run. The reason this became so popularized is because of what happened when the picnickers went out to watch the battle. They settled, most of them settled themselves upon a hill so that they could overlook the battle and see what happened. You know, the Confederates were coming, the Union Army, were, they were coming together there. This was not a tremendous distance from Richmond, which was the capital of the Confederacy for a period of time. And some of the people were even saying, it won't take us long, you know, to march to Richmond. And so as the picnickers were up on the hill with their opera glasses and their wine bottles and their blankets and having a, a lovely Sunday afternoon watching carnage and young men and boys kill each other, you know, down in the valley. As the two armies converged, the picnickers watched up on the hill. They began to fight, and as the fight took place, there was a lot of bloodshed, and the fight began to move closer to where they were picnicking. And as they got closer and closer and closer, suddenly the Union Army turned and fled, and the direction that they fled was right over the, the top of where the picnickers were. And so you can imagine the chaos that ensued. These people that had come to observe the battle and just, you know, watch in a trite-like way and just see what was going to happen. These bystanders, these spectators. And the next thing you know, 
they were engrossed in a mad, chaotic rush away from the battlefield, wondering if they were even going to save their lives. There were many congressmen and senators that went to see the battle and just assumed, well, the Union Army is just going to take care of business and this will be the end of the battle. Many of the soldiers only signed up for 90-day stints in the Army thinking that this is all it would take, just a few days and it would be done. And as a matter of fact, one of the congressmen was captured. He was a prisoner of war for six months. He was out picnicking, watching the carnage. So there's a great lesson in the spectators of this first battle of Bull Run. One lesson that we get is that you can't be near the battle and be safe. You can't sit and spectate and be near the battle and watch what's going on and be safe from the battle because the battle, the tide of the battle turned and went in the direction of where the spectators were. And the next thing you know, even one of the spectators, one of the congressmen's carriages was blown up by a shell and it blocked the road of retreat. And here they are, just chaos ensues. And the spectators, the soldiers, they're running. People are screaming. There's smoke. There's blood. It's just carnage. So you can't think, well, I'm just going to be a spectator of a battle and I'm going to be safe. It's not going to happen. Okay? The Apostle Paul says here that we are in a battle. He says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. He doesn't say that there's going to be times in your life whenever you're in a battle. He says that we are in a battle on a daily basis. You see? He doesn't say that one of these days there's going to be a battle that's going to come to you. No, you're in a battle as a Christian on a daily basis. Sometimes the greatest battle that you face is the person in the mirror. Sometimes that's your greatest battle. When you look at what you are, if you're willing to do that, and fight against the old human nature that wells up within you. You can't be a spectator and think that the battle is safe for you. It's interesting that Ephesians 6, where I read to you, where he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and put on the whole armor of God because you wear armor when you're in a battle. Many people think, well, this armor is something like what you'd see in a museum that's just unusable, untouchable. This is not unusable, untouchable museum-like armor. Now, granted, it's not the same type of armor that the army wears today, for sure. They didn't have tanks and all those different things back then, but this was a soldier's armor where he would put on protective gear to go out and fight. He says to put on the whole armor of God. It's interesting to note that this finally, where he preps the people that are listening to him for the battle, it follows on the heels of him talking about the family, how husbands interact with their wives, how wives interact with their husbands, how children interact with their parents and vice versa, how you deal with things in the workplace. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? He's telling us the battles that we face are right there in front of us. It's not somewhere far off and some issue that's going to you know, pop, be popular in media or whatever. The battles that we face are right there in front of us. That's what he's saying. So he says, prepare for the battle. You're not ever going to be a spectator in this battle if you're going to follow the Lord. Now, if, if you're not going to follow the Lord and you're just going to kind of sit back and cruise, you're, you're going to be a spectator. And don't be surprised if you're running in chaos Whenever the battle does come to you and you're like, oh my goodness, I never dreamed it would come to me. It's going to come to you. As a matter of fact, it may already be there. I would dare say that in, our, in the culture that we're in today, the battle is already right at your door. Maybe in your house. 
There's no question that you can't divorce yourself from yourself. So you've got an ongoing battle with yourself. It's so important that we equip ourselves to deal with ourselves before we can ever even hope to fight against the enemies that come at us. And let me say this. It is Satan's design for you to think that the enemy is right here among us. That is Satan's design to, listen, we all get bumps and bruises and we all get black eyes and we all have warts and pimples and so forth. That's what happens within the kingdom of God, within the church of God. But the enemy is not within the kingdom of God. If the word of God is being proclaimed in truth, if the teachings of the word of God are being given to you and you're studying that and you're interacting with that, listen, we all, we're all going to have bumps and bruises. It happens. Some of us may have more bumps and bruises than others. It can happen. But just remember, if Satan has you thinking that the enemy is right here within, then he's already won. Because the true enemy is out there trying to destroy the church of God. And one way that he destroys it is getting us to think that the enemy is within. You know, now there's no question that wolves can come among the flock. Paul said, I warn you to be careful. Watch for wolves. Okay? There's no question that can happen. But with spiritual sense and putting on the armor of God and engaging in the battle, it's so much easier to detect wolves than it is if you're just spectating and sitting on the sideline. See? In the book of Ephesians, the fifth chapter and the 16th verse, this is also a repeat from Colossians 4 and 5. Very similar language. Look at just a page back over at Ephesians. He says this. Let's look at verse 15. Seeing then that you walk circumspectly, that means roundabout, being aware of your surroundings, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. The days are full of trouble. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Notice he says to redeem the time. The word redeem means to buy up or buy back or ransom. And I love this definition. To rescue from loss. Have you ever suffered from lost time? Have you ever wasted any time? There's a hymn that we sing, Thus far the Lord has led me on. And there's a line in there that says, Much of my time has run to waste. God forgive us for the time that we waste. There was an old eagle song called Wasted Time. And they say it wasn't really wasted time. But I think it was wasted time. We waste so much time. But isn't it good to know that God has a way to get that time back? And I'm not talking about time travel. What I'm talking about is if you buy into the teaching here of getting into the battle and doing the things that God calls upon you to do and understanding that the battle is right in front of you, and don't be a spectator in the battle. You can ransom that time back. You can redeem that time. You can purchase it back. How would you feel if right now I told you I would sell you for $20, I'll sell you 30 minutes of time? I'd make a killing if I could do that. I'll sell you an hour. I tell you, there's many 30-minute segments and hours of time that I would like to buy back and do over. People say, what's the old Sinatra song? And Elvis sang it too, you know. I did it my way. There's nothing I would change. There's so many things that I would change if I could buy 30 minutes back and an hour back. There's so many decisions I would reverse. And that's what I think of. That convicts me. If you think, well, there's nothing about my life I would change, then Lord help you. There's so many things about my life that I would change, but I don't have a time machine that I can go back and do that. But I do have this verse right here where it says, redeeming the time for the days are evil. The days are trouble. Colossians says, walk in wisdom towards them that are without, redeeming the time. 
Rescue your time from loss. I had a friend that I graduated law school with, and he was extremely intelligent. And I didn't see him after we graduated. We took the bar, and then we went to this deal where, you know, you get sworn in. And I saw him at that. And I said, hey, what you been doing with your time? And now this is me wasting all kinds of time in music. This is Brother Tim back in 1996, you know, still trying to follow a music career and all the time I was wasting. But this guy said, so you, the point is, you know, if I was thinking this guy was wasting time, it had to be bad because I was wasting so much time. I said, what you been doing? He said, oh, you know, I've been watching a good bit of TV. I said, really? And he went on to tell me, he said, yeah, you know, you know, there's a lot of stuff on TV. I was like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> this guy was a real practical, logical type guy. There's a lot of shows on TV. There's a lot of movies on TV. I said, you're right. He said, you know, I started watching a movie one night about 8 o'clock. It was a good movie, and I watched it till about 10. And the next thing you know, they started advertising this movie before the other one ended. And, and it looked like a good movie, too. And he said, you know, the next thing I looked up, it was 12 hours later. The sun was coming up. And I'd watched movies all night long. <laughs> Now, some of you I see back there going, oh, binge watching. Oh, my goodness. That was back before the days of binge watching. And hey, look, I've watched shows that I really liked, and they leave you hanging right at the end, and it's only another 45 or 50 minutes, and I just plunge on into it no matter what time of night it is. I don't think the sun came up on me, but I'd be like, what am I thinking? I'm wasting this time, you see? It doesn't mean that you can't watch a little TV. It doesn't mean you can't watch a little Netflix. and these. Just be careful what you are watching. You may need to buy back some time. But my friend was like, before I knew it, 12, 13, 14 hours had passed and the sun came up on me. I tell you, there's a situation where we should be concerned with redeeming the time. So much of my time has been wasted. And if I do the math of Psalm 90, I don't have a whole lot of time left. I've got less than some of you, but then there's some of you that have less than me, right? <laughs> and by the way, I think if you'll do the math of Psalm 90, you'll see some of you may be in the negative, <laughs> You're, you, you're buying time that you're not even really supposed to have because you're past that time. Praise God if you are. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without. Buying back the time. Getting in the game. Getting in the battle. Paul, how many times does he say? He says, it's high time that we be serving God. You know, my dad would say, back when we were cutting hay, you know, and it, he, man, my dad was a master at knowing when to cut the hay and how long to let it dry? I mean, he was just a, ma it was like a, to me, it was like magic. It wasn't magic, but it was just a mystery to me because as I told you before, there's only one time that he ever put up green hay and that was on a Sunday and it burned the hay barn down. So he never did that again. He was really conscious about putting up that hay just right. And Chris and I would go out there and watch him, you know, we'd be ready. We'd be chomping at the bit to fluff it, rake it, and bale it. We were chomping at the bit and we'd be like, well, it looks mostly you know, yellow now. It looks mostly dry. And Daddy said, no, look right here, boys. He pulled it up. There's some green in there. We're going to have to wait. <laughs> Dad was a master. He'd say, boys, we got we to gotta make hay while the sun shines. You know, we got we to gotta do this. While, we got to get after this while the getting is good. And that's what this principle is teaching right here. While you can, there's going to come a time maybe when you can't, you know, I, I, some of you have had experiences like that where you got sick and so forth. Things happened and you couldn't come to church or whatever. You know, I remember back whenever I had my back surgery last year and I was determined that I was going to be at church on that, that Sunday after back surgery. I was determined. I, I, know, I know Brother Luke preached that Sunday. I know he preached. For me, it was foggy and I was unfocused. 
I remember seeing him up here with his beard in the pulpit. I don't remember a thing that he said. I even thought, I said, you know, I may, maybe I don't need to go. <laughs> but I pushed on and came on. There's going to come a time when maybe you can't go to church and you'll wish that you could. There's going to be a time when you may say, I wish that I could get a King James translation of the Bible, but I can't find it anywhere. There's going to come a time when you say, I wish that I had spent more time with my children, but I can't anymore because they're gone. So Tracy and I were all alone, and we weren't real sad, but we were all alone yesterday afternoon. It was just she and I, and I, three of the kids were over in Jackson, Mississippi. You know, it was just the two of us. And I was like, well, this is weird. And she made me feel better really quick about it. You know, they're coming home, they're coming back. But I got a little taste of what it's like. You know, I couldn't spend time with my children that afternoon because they weren't there. And Brother Heath, we had Lincoln for a while, then Brother Heath came over and stole him away. We didn't even have that entertainment anymore. I'm just kidding. He didn't steal him. That's his child. He, he's got every right. But when, when Link left, you know, all the entertainment left. We're bored again. We've got to talk to each other. My goodness, what are we going to do? <laughs> you see, once that time is gone, you can't buy it back and physically buy it back. But you can redeem it according to the Word of God. You can redeem the time and dedicate the time that you have to honoring God. And that is something that will carry you on into eternity. The binge watching, the wasted time, the things that I've done will not be with me in the sense of I'll carry those things into eternity. Those will be regrets that I have. And I'll look back and say, I wish I had spent more time doing the things that God calls upon me to do. But I'll carry the things that God has called upon me to do straight on into eternity with me. They won't be the reason I'm there by any means, but it will be joyous recollections of following the Lord and redeeming the time. So much wasted time. Listen, Matthew 25, there's been much speculation about the parable of the ten virgins. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you, well, I know what all it means. I'm not going to tell you that because I really don't. And, and if somebody says, well, yeah, I got it all figured out, they you know, be careful, because I don't, I don't think anybody has it completely figured out. I think you can learn some great lessons about not wasting time or resources from Matthew 25. I don't know fully what it means, but it is, it is put right there in the midst of Jesus teaching them about His coming. So now I'll tell you what, one thing it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that, oh goodness, there's somebody who didn't prepare themselves enough, a child of God, born of the Spirit, and all of a sudden they're going to wind up in hell. It does not mean that. God won't lose a single one of His children. But it does mean, it does teach, that there are blessings that we will miss if we're wasting time. Or if we're not careful. If we don't get in the battle. If we just sit back and spectate. Because that's what they were doing. The unwise virgins, they were spectating. They were just kind of watching what happened. It says, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. This is a big deal. It's like a wedding ceremony. And five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. Now how silly is that? It's, it's about nighttime. It's probably late afternoon. And it's about to get dark. I know most of you are sitting there thinking, well, Brother Tim, you did the same thing whenever you and Sister Tracy got married and you went out there on the side of that mountain and were lost in the dark. You're exactly right. I have been one of the foolish virgins that are listed here. I've been one of those foolish ones that didn't take any oil, didn't take any light. And we suffered for it. Sister Tracy suffered for it for sure. I get it. Don't dwell on that for too long. Let's get back to the text. But I know how that feels. 
So they didn't take the oil. They didn't carry the light that they needed whenever it got dark. And so sure enough, it says that the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps while the bridegroom tarried. They all slumbered and slept. They were resting. And at midnight, there's an old song that I used to like called the Midnight Cry. It's an old Southern gospel song. And at midnight, there was a cry made. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Now this was something in that culture that was a normal thing. Whenever the bridegroom was to come to take his bride and bring her back to the bridegroom's chamber, the house that he had prepared, there would be a crier in the street and they would say, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. And it would wake up the whole town. This was a, this was a citywide, a village-wide celebration. It didn't matter if it was at midnight. You see, he's got the house finished. It's at midnight. It's at 10 o'clock. It's at 3 a.m. in the morning. The bridegroom is coming to get his bride. At midnight, there was a cry, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. So you see, they carried some light with them, but they didn't carry enough. But the wise answered, saying, Not so lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourself. Now here's what I want you to get. The word buy right there means to redeem. Just like it says in Colossians and Ephesians, redeeming the time for the days are evil. You see, that's the lesson that's here. Even these five foolish ones could go and redeem the time. I know they run into some pretty hard situation here where the bridegroom says, you can't come in now. They miss some incredible blessings. And child of God, if we sit and spectate over the battle, if we picnic while the battle is taking place and others are being bloodied and others are being hurt, if we just spectate and picnic during that, then we're, not, we're going to be just like those five foolish virgins. But isn't it great that God says you can still redeem the time? Maybe we've spectated for too long. For long enough. Don't wait. You know, think about it. Aren't you glad that Christ didn't wait? Aren't you glad that He wasn't afraid to get His hands dirty? To engage the battle like He did? Aren't you glad that Christ was not ashamed and is not ashamed to go into your sorrows with you? He went into your sorrows in, in a way that is incomprehensible on the cross when He bore your sorrows and He carried your griefs. But even now, even though He did that on the cross, and don't you ever forget that, child of God, when you're dealing with sorrow and you're dealing with grief, He bore your sorrows. He knows how you feel. He knows what you're going through. Not only that, He knows how the entire elect family of God feels because He bore the entire elect family's sorrows. He knows the depression. He knows the issue. He knows how you feel. And He bore it on the cross, but He still understands today. He went to a place that he'll never go again when he was made to be sin. Christ was not afraid to get his hands dirty. But we often say, well, I just don't want to get involved. Well, whether you want to get involved or not, as a born-again child of God, the Lord has made you to be involved because he's taken you into his family. And then on top of that, because he has taken you into, into his family, you don't have a choice about getting involved. You are involved, so you might as well go ahead and get your hands dirty, you see? Think about it. You ever ask yourself the question, which one would I be in the, in the account of the Good Samaritan? 
would I be the Levite that just kind of passed on the way, probably knew the guy laying there in the ditch, the Jew laying in the ditch. Would I be the Levite? Would I be the priest that just kind of scurried on past? Or would I be the good Samaritan? We're all pretty vain, aren't we? I mean, I, I always, I'm like, yeah, I'd, I'd be the good Samaritan. That, that's me. <laughs> but would we? You know, are we too busy? Do we pass by the moment? Do we pass by the battle? Do we enjoy the picnic and just spectate at what we see instead of going and getting our hands dirty? I tell you, that good Samaritan got his hands dirty, didn't he? He got down in the ditch with the man who had been left for dead, and he helped him. He used his money on him. He used his wine and his oil on him to patch up his wounds, and he set him upon his own animal, his own beast, and carried him to the inn and paid extra money to make sure that the guy was going to be okay. I believe that's a guy that didn't picnic. Do y'all? <laughs> Have you ever asked yourself the question, you know, think about yourself and your schedules and the things that go on which one would I be? That kind of scares me to think about that. If I'm thinking clearly and I'm looking at myself for what I am as a sinner, I'm not just going to automatically say, oh, yeah, sure, I'd be the good Samaritan. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to look at myself and I'm going to say, would I? Am I too busy? Look at John, the ninth chapter. This is where Jesus passes by the man who was blind. And I want you to listen to the language. Jesus passed by. He saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, that's a weird question, isn't it? First of all, how could this man who didn't even exist sin to be born blind? It's not even logical. And then on top of that, these folks obviously believe that it's possible that something the parents did, a sin the parents committed, could pass down to the child. Now, I think they were thinking about maybe the generational curse, you know, that's listed in Exodus and Deuteronomy. But the generational curse didn't work that way. You know, God didn't curse a child with blindness because his parents were bad. That is a misunderstanding of the heart and character of God. So they didn't understand. And, he, and guess what? Here's God walking with them. It's Jesus. And Jesus said, neither hath this man sinned. I wonder if he kind of, you know, a little tongue-in-cheek, rolled his eyes on that one. <laughs> Nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Now watch what he says. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That's some foreboding language, isn't it? Did you hear what he said? I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. Jesus also said in John 12 and 35, and this was related to him going to the cross. He says, yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whether he goeth. See, Jesus was alluding to the fact that there's darkness coming. Think about it. There would have to be less light in the world when the Son of God ascends back to heaven, right? Because He says, I'm the light of the world. So there's got to be less light in the world, spiritual light, when Christ goes back to heaven. But I think He's, I know He's talking about more than just that. He's saying there will come time, a time, and times throughout history where there will be great difficulty in serving God. They experienced that shortly after Christ went back to heaven. You know, I don't think they could have understood the depth of the darkness that was coming in the days of 
Jerusalem in AD 70 when more than a million people were slaughtered and they were eating each other inside during the siege. They were eating each other and they were eating their children because they were starving. I tell you, that's darkness. I don't think they fully comprehended the level of suffering and persecution that was going to come when a madman, a madman who was Caesar, who was, a, who was the emperor, his name was Nero, and he hung up the Christians in his garden and put oil upon the Christians and burned them for torches so that he could walk through his garden at night and see while the Christians are burning. The, the human, the burning, the smell of flesh burning is what he smelled going through the garden. I don't think that they fully comprehended that type of darkness. And you know what? In the midst of all that darkness, you say, oh, it's just, a, it's just terrible that the church was almost stamped out. No, it was not. It thrived and it grew in the midst of that type of battle going on. Because people that are born again saw what those people were doing and standing for the Lord and engaging in the battle and refusing to take back their profession of belief in Jesus and watching them go to die in the arena and like I just described. And it inspired other children of God to do the same thing. And you're here today because of those testimonies. You're here today because those children of God engaged in the battle. It makes me feel a lot better about the things we face right now. You know, we need to make hay while the sun shines, while, it's, while we have the light and the freedom to do the things that we do. We need to store up and do the things that God calls upon us to do because darkness is upon us. I'm not trying to scare you, but I'm trying to be realistic. Darkness, the night, is upon us. We've had a good run. We've had a wonderful run of freedom in the United States of America. But as the old saying goes, the worm has turned. Christianity doesn't have the high ground anymore. We're living in the blissful land of the kingdom here. But the darkness is coming. It may be your children. It may be you. It may be your grandchildren. It may be my grandchild or children. But we need to be preparing ourselves for the battle. It's not a time to picnic. It's a time to prepare. This is interesting because I'm fascinated with what went down whenever the terrorists flew into the World Trade Center towers back at 9-11. Before some of your time, and some of you were very small whenever this occurred. But the USA Today had an article on the front page about those who escaped the World Trade Center on 9-11. They interviewed over 300 survivors and family members of victims, and they concluded that in the South Tower, those who didn't delay but ran for safety immediately are the ones who survived. Those who delayed are the ones who perished. They hesitated. They also noted that the, the people lived or died in the towers by groups. In other words, there were those that influenced others. Just stay, just stay. Now, you know as well as I did that they didn't have any ill intent in that, right? I mean, you know that. But the fact is that the ones that influenced the others to, others to stay, they perished. And then ones who influenced others to run, they survived. Those who didn't delay and those who took a stand, if you will, those are the ones that survived. That's a great lesson, is it not? When the, when the fire came, when the building rattled, when everything just went chaos, they ran and they saved their lives. 
You know how many times in the Word of God that in, in battle, when it comes to the spiritual warfare of the child of God, don't think that's, a, that's something that's incorrect. There's times when the child of God battles by running. What about Joseph whenever he was confronted finally one-on-one with Potiphar's wife? She's been trying to lie with him day after day after day. And he tells her, he says, how can I do this thing against God? I won't sin against God and I won't sin against my master. And then finally she corners him and he runs as fast as he can. See, he was battling. He was not a spectator. He was not picnicking. He was running for his life. And you know what? He just didn't turn quite fast enough and run quick enough because she got his coat and she kept his coat. And she said to her husband, look, look, I told you, you brought this Israelite in our house to mock me lying through her teeth. And Joseph goes to prison for eight to ten years because of a false accusation. But it says, of course, that God was with him. Even in the midst of that terrible situation. So there comes a time when you need to flee. You know, it says again and again, flee fornication. Flee temptation. There's all types of things to flee from. Flee these things that will affect you. Listen, I had a cousin over in... Lamar County. He was in his early 20s. He was the, the son of one of my first cousins. And this, little, this young man who was in his early 20s went to a party one night. And there, of course, was drinking and drugs and pills and things going on. And he was not, from what I understand of him, I didn't know him very well personally, but from what they say, he was not just a, you know all-out partier doing that all the time. He just went with his friends, and so here he goes, and you know they're drinking and they're partying and they're listening to music and so forth. And so somebody had some pills there. And to the best of my knowledge and what's been related to me, you know, he'd never taken a pill before or whatever, and he took one pill. One, I think it was a oxycodone. One oxycodone, he took that pill. Died. Because that one single pill was laced with fentanyl that was enough to kill 10 people. One pill, one time, if, giving the benefit of the doubt, if that was the first time that he had ever taken a pill, it only took one pill to kill him. You see, what child of God, young, old, what should you do in a situation like that? The child of God, when the person says, here, have this, drink this, take this, flee from that. That is the battle. You see, resisting the temptation that comes to you. And look, it's not just limited to the young folks, but it is very interesting to me, having been a juvenile court prosecutor for almost 20 years, it is interesting to me that the worst situations seem to come up in that tender age, say from you know, 10 to 20 or 10 to 25 or you know, whatever. In that young age, you've got the worst temptations that come along and you've got the mindset that thinks they know everything. Why do you know that, Brother Because I was that way. All my parents are just crazy. They don't know anything. And then, man, they got wiser and wiser and wiser as the years went on. You see, they were always wise. But in that tender age where so many life decisions are coming at you, oh my goodness, can we not look around us today and see how many fall, how many stumble, how many are vexed by that age? And we need wise counsel. We need to flee the temptation. We need to rely on those that we know that we can trust. And even at that age, I remember, I didn't even want to hear it. I didn't even want to hear it when I was that age. I'd grit my teeth and say, okay. 
Oh, praise God for the mercy of God that I had parents that were merciful and continued to labor with me because in that tender age, you know, I think I've told you all this before. You know, I'm, I'm an attorney today because of my parents. Even I know it's a silly story, but I'm an attorney because my parents and my brother. You know, what I do for a living, and I was just kind of like, oh, whatever, I'll never do that. But somewhere back in the recesses of my twisted mind, I listened to them. I maybe didn't listen to them a thousand times, but I listened to them in that area. You know, I'm married to the girl of my dreams today because somewhere in the back of my twisted, crazy mind, at that tender age, I keep listening to Harold and Diane. And they say, wait, they say, wait, find the right one. Find the person that's going to be best for you. And, and, and my whole nature is going against that. I'm just somehow, by the grace of God, I listened. And child of God, I don't care what age you are, in that tender age, you can start listening now. You can redeem the time now. You say, I've made too many mistakes, Brother Tim. Join the club we have all. We've all made mistakes. Let's don't, let's don't start comparing mistakes because that would be embarrassing. Well, you made this mistake and that mistake and the other mistake. Well, I made this one, this one, and this one. Let's don't start comparing that. It's not wise to do that. We're all sinners before God. We've all made mistakes. I had somebody tell me sometime, well, Brother Tim, I just don't think I can listen to you preach because you haven't made as many mistakes as I have. And I thought, well, first of all, is that a challenge for me to go out and make more mistakes? I don't know. It wasn't anybody here. Okay. But I thought, that, that's absurd. I can't listen to this preacher because he hadn't made as many mistakes. First of all, that person didn't know the preacher. He didn't know the mistakes that he had made. It's not about the making of mistakes. It's about the repentance and redeeming the time and getting in the battle. I don't care what it is that we've done or had happened to us or decisions that we make or things that we've said. We need to get in the battle. Listen, we don't want to get caught in the building as it burns down. We want to run. Amen. You remember Nehemiah when he was building on the wall? You know, how, you know how they built that wall so fast? He set them in families. He set them in families on the wall to build this section, this section, this section because he knew that they would fight harder for their families. And he cried to them and he said, fight for your families and fight for the kingdom and, and be ready because the enemy, were, they were coming. They were mad that they were building the wall. And the enemy was coming at them. And be ready to fight at any moment and fight for your families. Fight for the Jehovah. The same thing applies to us today. Fight for one another. Go into your burdens with one another. Go into your sorrows with one another. And praise be to God, go into your joys and your glories with one another. You see, your blessings and your benefits too. Rejoice with those that rejoice. Weep with those that weep. Don't be like the Ray Stevens song, The Ballad of the Blue Cyclone. Y'all need a little humor. Nobody's smiling. Y'all know Ray Stevens. One of my favorites of all time. And one of my lesser known favorite songs is The Ballad of the Blue Cyclone. Brother Jim knows it. He's looking down and snickering right now. You know, the blue cyclone, he's the meanest wrestler the ring has ever known. He'll make you groan, he'll make you moan, he'll lay you prone and break your bones. He's the blue cyclone. <laughs> and by the way, this song is so good that it has two parts. There's a part one and there's a part two. So if you listen to part one, you say, Brother Tim left us hanging. Search for part two. This song is so good, it's got a part one and a part two. Brother Jim knows he's nodding back there. Yes, he's listened to it. He and I have discussed, had deep theological discussions about the blue cyclone. <laughs> But the, the story in the Blue Cyclone is where the guy that's singing the song, he gets beat up by the Blue Cyclone. He says, well, that's not going to happen again. And in part two, he goes back and he takes two big guys with him. We're going to show the Blue Cyclone this time. 
And he shows up to confront the blue cyclone and he yells and he says, Hey, cyclone, remember me? I'm the guy you put to sleep. Only this time you can see I'm not alone. And he says, You see them two big dudes over there? The cyclone looked and said, Over where? And I turned around and they were gone. <laughs> and he beats him up again. One of the best songs you'll ever listen, you'll never listen to. Don't be like the two dudes in the blue cyclone. He took them to help him, and they're going to go into this battle with him. And he said, look at them over there. Those guys hit the road. We can't be like that with one another. We have to go into the sorrow with one another. We have to go into the drama with one another. We have to get our hands dirty. You say, oh, that's the preacher's job. Leave it to the preacher. You know, he's the trash man. You know, I've joked and said that's really what a preacher is. He's a trash man. You just dump your trash on the preacher, you know. <laughs> he can sift through it and filter it and find out what's good and find what's bad. And it is true to some degree or another, you know, that the preacher is the trash man. And that's fine, but he's not the only one. If he's the only one, then if I'm the only trash man among us, then y'all need to start double, triple praying for me right now. Because we need more than one trash guy. We need multiple children of God who are willing to go into the mud and the muck with one another and say, I'll help you bear your burden. Instead of saying, well, you deserve that. You messed up and you deserve that. God forbid if you ever have a pastor or a preacher that says that kind of thing, you'll be in the most trouble you could ever imagine. Don't be like the guys in the battle of the blue cyclone. Work while it is day. The battle is coming. It may already be there. You don't want to wake up one day with your family, your children, your spouse, your workplace, your community, and you've stood afar all that time. Maybe sadly, it might be the attitude of the ones that we read about in Isaiah that says, Come not thou near unto me, for I am holier than thou. I don't want to get dirty. I don't want to get dirty because I'm too holy. Lord, help us from that. That is a destructive, pharisaical attitude where Jesus pronounced woe after woe after woe upon the Pharisees because they would not enter into the burdens of the people. They just said, We're going to lay these burdens on you, but we're not going to help you bear them. Lord, help us from that. They were spectators. The Pharisees were the ultimate spectators. They stood back and said, now you go do this and you get this right, but I'm not going to lift my, a burden with one of my fingers. Lord, save us from that type of attitude. Don't distance yourself. Don't pull apart. Draw together. Satan does not want you to be close and connected and know each other. You know, think about it. Look at yourself and say, how many years have I been going here at Bethlehem? Do I know every single person that goes here? I do. You say, oh, that's your job, Brother Tim. Think about how long you've been going. Do I know this person? Do I know their name? Do I know who they are? Do I know this visitor? Y'all are such a friendly church. Praise God. But think about that. Enter into knowing one another and enter into burdens with one another. I wrote this some time ago it's from Psalm 90. Lord, Thou hast been our dwelling place before the mountains ere were formed. Generations everlasting to everlasting, Thou art God. Though men are swept away in wrath, when as flowers in morning bloom, in evening consumed in wrath, when Thou call, shall spring forth anew. Though our days be threescore and ten, and if by strength they may be more, in sorrow we press on, and then we fly to bright heavenly shores. Return, O Lord, return. How long? 
For a thousand years in thy sight is yesterday when past and gone, and as a watch in this dark night. Return, O Lord, how long return? Let thy work to thy saints appear. Make us glad and rejoice in thee. O satisfy us, Lord, draw near. Return, return, ye saints of God, that's you. Let our work appear in the land. May God's beauty be upon us. Lord, make sure the work of our hands as a tale that is told as a watch in the night. Like a shadow, we all pass away. Help me, Lord, in my heart. This wisdom apply. So, Lord, teach me to number my days. The battle is raging all around you. The battle is not in Washington, D.C. and the stuff that goes on up there. The battle is in your homes, among your families, in your workplace, standing for the truth of God, speaking the truth of God, not sitting by as a spectator and not engaging. In a loving and kind and honest way, getting in the battle. Psalm 90, where we read that the days of man are three score and ten. That means 70 years. I'll tell you a little funny story and we'll close. A couple years ago, a local baseball coach at Gordo, who's a friend of mine, asked me to come and do a devotion, a Bible study with the boys before they started their season or in the middle of their season. And so we went to the school library. Praise God for that opportunity. Praise God to be able to engage in battle like that, to go and share in the public schools. Thank God for the location that we live in that we can do that still. The darkness may come one day where you can't. But we went into the library, and there's a bunch of the baseball boys in there, you know, probably age 14 to 17 or 18. And then there were the coaches. And so I went through Psalm 90, and I said, okay, you know, 70 years, maybe 80 years is all you've got. And so I went to each boy, and I said, how old are you, son? And one of them said, well, I'm 15. I said, okay, how many years you got left? And some of them, I'm not going to make too much fun of them because they're like me. They're not very good in math, and they missed it, and everybody laughed, you know. I would probably be that kid that, that missed the math. But we went around the room to every kid, every young man. How many years you got left? Oh, I got 65. I got 63. I've got this. I got that. And back in those days, uh, Brother Harold's uncle, Newell, who just passed away, he, was, he helped coach the baseball team for 33 years. He was a volunteer. So he was there. And I went through all of them. You know, Coach Pate, I said, how many years you got left? He's like me. He's about my age. You know, 20 years, 21 years is all I got left. <laughs> and I came to Coach Moss, Newell Moss, and I said, Coach, how many years you got left? He said, negative four. <laughs> <laughs> he, had, he didn't say much, did he, Harold? But when he spoke, it meant something. He said, negative four. <laughs> he was 74 years old. He was already past that time. Will you assess where you are? Number your days. See if you're a spectator in the battle. Because the battle rages on. Maybe that person that you know who's bearing that burden needs you. Child of grace, maybe I need you. You hear me? I sure need you to pray for me. Maybe the husband, the wife, the children, the co-worker. I, you know, there's some of you, when you walk in, and when I see you places... I know you so well that I can just kind of look at your face and say, oh, something's not right. This person is down. This person is not happy. And sometimes that prompts me to say, hey, are you okay? 
I'm not going to do that in a crowd, of course, but hey, are you okay? You seem down. You seem unhappy. We need to know each other that well. We need to be connected because you know what? We're soldiers in a battle that's going to keep raging until the Lord comes back, until we lay these bodies down. May the Lord bless us to not be spectators, to not picnic, but to engage in the battle.